We had a wonderful evening last night at our fall festival and appreciate the Grazianos hosting that for us. We had a great number out there. I won't say who, but one of our members needs to have some history lessons. Uh, they were dressed as Paul Revere. They were uh, riding a horse, warning us the British were coming to the tune of Hail Britannia. I'm not sure that's how that happened. I also found out last night that one of our children thinks I have tremendous influence. Walked up to me, didn't even say hello, just told me that I need to let the people know who make Bluey to make more episodes because they're bored of the ones they've made. I've never seen an episode of that show, but I guess I, I've got a letter to write or something. Every Sunday night at 5 o'clock, some of our wonderful children sit down front and they're involved in pew packers and they do a tremendous job singing songs and learning Bible facts and, and memory verses and things. And since we've been doing that for the microphone, some of you all are actually learning about numbers. Some, some of you are learning along with them. And it's wonderful to see some of the things that they learn. It's, it's tremendous how much they are able to, to say and to sing along with Bible facts, memory verses, Bible lists and different things. And we continue to add uh, new things from time to time. But one of the things we've done from the very beginning with them that we do very, very often is we either sing or sometimes they just say all the books of the Bible, all 66 of them. And then sometimes either by song, as we began last week with them, or just through questions, we'll ask them how many books are in the Bible. Of course, they will say 66. But then we'll ask them how many are in the Old Testament. They'll say 39. How many are in the New Testament? They'll say 27. And while we know those facts, those numbers, I think sometimes people are still confused by that. Why do we still have both of them? What's the balance that we're supposed to have between what we term the, the Old Testament and what we think of as the New Testament? If we're under one, why do we have the Old? Are we, are we supposed to follow both of them? Are we, are we supposed to pick and choose what, what to follow here and there? That's what we're going to think about this morning. But let me tell you where we're going the next few weeks. We're continuing our training for evangelism, our congregational model of evangelism, and the month of November is going to be very, very important with that. I hope you read the bulletin. I'm sure all of you read every word of the bulletin every week. <clears throat> the phones and emails in the office during the week let us know you don't read. No. Um, but my article this week dealt with sort of the, uh, the plan for November. On Sunday nights, today, next Sunday, and then the fourth Sunday, I kidded with somebody and said, we are the Church of Christ. That's one, two, and four. Um, you song leaders are going, I get that. We are going to be going through back to the Bible actually in a training session. How do you actually hold a Bible study with someone? But on Sunday mornings on those three Sundays, we're taking a topic from that particular study and we're going to be thinking about it more in a, a sermon setting. And tonight is where we think about the, the first booklet that deals with the authority of the Bible, how we got the Bible, is the Bible still our, our standard of authority, and those sorts of things. The, the, the second half of that book deals with this question, the Old and New Testament. The first half, what we're going to be talking about tonight as we study together, is basically how we got the Bible. Is, is, it, is it really our standard? But a lot of people struggle with that question. Are we supposed to follow the Old Testament or the New Testament, or what parts of each one? And this morning's lesson is not meant to be a tremendously deep dive. But it's really meant to give us more of an overview, sort of a broad brushstroke, if you will, 
of how to think about and how to consider that balance between those first 39 books, what we term the Old Testament, and those, those last 27 books, what we think of as the New Testament, what we call the New Testament. And so with that in mind, we're going to make three observations this morning to consider that, that subject. Number one, we need to remember that the Old Testament, those first 39 books, are inspired. You know, sometimes you read through the Bible, that, that Old Testament, those first 39 books, especially really the, the first few, you have so many just, I'm using this word loosely, but this fanciful things, things that people could think are fantasy, right? Creation itself. Creation from just simply speaking something into existence. Noah and the ark. The tower of Babel. You go later in the Old Testament, things like David and Goliath, this giant man. You, you have Jonah and that great sea creature. Those stories are just, just amazing. And some people think, well, then maybe because that's just so, so over the top, maybe that part of the Bible is just sort of a collection of stories and nothing more. Maybe, maybe it has some, some wisdom to it, but... In 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16, in one of the most famous phrases he ever penned, Paul wrote, all Scripture is inspired of God. And then he talks about what it's good for. But just think about that phrase for a moment. And keep in mind that in the context, Paul had just been talking to Timothy about those, as he called them, sacred writings that you have been taught from a child. You can make the argument that the Scripture in view in 2 Timothy 3.16 has the Old Testament more in view than the New Testament because that's what Timothy would have been taught as a young child. But by using the word all, all Scripture, Paul is incorporating what we know as that entirety of 66 books. But what's it mean that they're inspired? In our culture, we, we use the word inspired very loosely, and that's okay as long as we know what we mean when we say it. We, we'll talk about you know, a painter who is inspired to paint this, this beautiful portrait of someone, or we might even take it to the, the sports world and say that team had inspired effort, and that's how they, they pulled off the upset. Or, or, or Beethoven or Mozart were inspired to pen these tremendous works of, uh, of symphonic music. But that's not the word in, in Scripture. That's not what it means. It's not just a motivation. That word you have in your Bible is inspired. Some translations go ahead and translate it out for you. It literally means God-spirited or God-breathed. It is making the claim that every word of what we know as Scripture is literally from the Spirit or the mind of God. Peter would talk about how holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. That's the same idea. And so when you read... Authors like Moses in the Old Testament or David or Ezra, they were just as inspired of God as were those who wrote the New Testament. Matthew and Mark and John and Paul and others. All Scripture is inspired of God. Now, for each of these points, by the way, we're going to make just a couple of practical observations. You could make plenty of more, and I hope you will, just in your own thinking. But how does it help us to know that all Scripture, including the Old Testament, is inspired. Let me give you just a couple of things. One is, it impresses us with the unity of the Bible. If the same Spirit, that is, the same Spirit of God, inspired those Old Testament authors and inspired those New Testament authors, then it shouldn't surprise us that the Bible is completely unified throughout. That there are no mistakes, for one thing, but there also are no contradictions. Moses didn't write something 
And then centuries later, Peter in the New Testament come along and say, well, I know what Moses meant, but he messed that up. Let me tell you how, how, what, he, what he messed up here. There's, there's, there's none, none of that. Everything that is fleshed out for us in the Old Testament is corroborated and, and is not contradicted at all by the New Testament. But it also, and this is something that a lot of people struggle with, knowing that all Scripture is inspired of God should also cause us, well, to deal with very difficult things that are found in the Old Testament. What about those texts where God's people were told, you go into that land, you wipe them out. Folks, I don't like those texts either. Those are hard to read. But if I struggle with those things, if they, to, to use a modern term, if they're sort of off-putting to me, the problem is with me and not with the text. Because it is exactly what God not only wanted done, it's what God wanted recorded for people for all time to consider and study and think about. And there are far more of those in the Old Testament than the New Testament. All these bloodshed passages and war passages, they're, they're hard. There's no, there's no getting around that. But the same Spirit of God inspired those texts that inspired things like, For God so loved the world, in John chapter 3 and verse 16. And so the Old Testament, we must keep in mind, is inspired. It's not just a, a nice collection of stories and some wise sayings that then we get to the New Testament and that's what matters. It's all inspired of God. Connected with that, number two, and because of that, <clears throat> excuse me, the Old Testament is important. We're going to get back to Galatians 3 that Nate read for us so well a few minutes ago in just a moment. Before we get there, I want to get to a little more maybe well-known passage along these lines. In Romans 15 and verse 3, I know verse 4 is on the screen, but in Romans 15 and verse 3, Paul quotes from the Old Testament. He quotes specifically from what we know as Psalm 69 verse 9. And he connects that psalm with Jesus. And with that as the background, in Romans 15.3, he then says in Romans 15 and verse 4, that what was written in earlier times, some translations have, the Old King James has aforetime, in former days, what was written before was written for our learning. That we, through patience and encouragement of the Scriptures, might have hope. Now, it's interesting to me, that that verse, by the way, uses the word Scriptures one verse after Paul had quoted from the Old Testament. But he also specifically says that those things written earlier or before time or in earlier days were written for some very specific things. He names four. We won't go deeply into them, but just to remind us, you've got them listed on the screens. They're written for instruction, or some translations have teaching. We learn things from the Old Testament. We learn tremendous amounts about the nature of God, we learn tremendous amounts about uh, sin and its consequences. We learn about the providence of God. And, and you, you can, I should have started listing stuff. So we can keep going for a long, long, long time about things that instruct us or teach us from the Old Testament. We also are told that there is endurance or patience in the Old Testament. We, we think of that sometimes in the lives of particular individuals. You might think of Job, for example, or many, many others. But also just the entire narrative of the Old Testament is one of patience because it's patience of God towards His people. God is continually patient. We were reminded of that to some degree with our comments before the Lord's Supper, where Brother Gary let us in, about how people tend to forget, but God continued to have a plan. God continued to be patient. 
The Old Testament also gives us encouragement. Some translations have comfort. Folks, if all we had in the Old Testament was a 23rd Psalm, we would know that was true. But how many people have been comforted in various times of life by so many different passages, not from the New Testament, but the Old Testament. Some of the Psalms, some of the words of the Proverbs, some of the lives of the Old Testament that give us encouragement. And then also, that we may have hope. Hope. You know, a lot of people think the Old Testament is just all negative. There is a lot of hope in the Old Testament. Sometimes that's seen in the lives of the people as they anticipate something better. But it's also seen, to use a fancy phrase, just writ large across the entire Old Testament. As there's just this anticipation building that something better has to be there. Something better has to be coming. And so it's just this constant feeling of hope as you you continue to turn pages of the Old Testament. It's got to be better than this. Now with that in mind, go to Galatians 3. Because that idea of hope comes across in Galatians chapter 3. Because Paul, keep in mind, who penned that, had been a Jew before he became a Christian. He knew all those Old Testament concepts. He knew... But did you notice in the text we read a little while ago in Galatians 3 that he, he says some sort of almost harsh-sounding things about the Old Testament, held us captive and, and all this stuff? I don't think he's saying that as, as a slight to the Old Testament law. He is saying it comparatively speaking. Compared to what we have in Christ, compared to the freedom we have in Christ, it's as if that Old Testament sort of held people back, almost held them captive in the concept. But then he describes the Old Testament as a guardian that brings us to Christ. It's interesting to see how different translations translate that word guardian. If if you're in the education field, maybe you're a teacher or an administrator, you may find it of interest that the original Greek word here that's translated in here is the word from which we get our word pedagogy or pedagogy. Different translations have things like this. A schoolmaster, some translations. I think the King James has that. The New King James has a tutor. There's even even a couple of lesser-known translations that have the word disciplinary. But none of those really get to the original idea. Because you see on the screens, originally, the word literally meant a slave or a servant whose job it was to bring the students to the place of instruction. To bring them to the teacher. Only later did it come to mean the actual teaching or the actual teacher. Now put all that together. What was Paul saying about the Old Testament or the Old Testament law? He was saying that it had a purpose. It was a servant or a slave, when you use that word. But why? What was the purpose? Its purpose was to bring the students to the ultimate place of learning. That is a beautiful concept about the Old Testament. And it shows the importance of it in that it brings us to something. We know something better. Now, let's ask our question again. Why is that such a big deal? It's a big deal for a lot of reasons. Here are three. One, continue the idea of hope. It builds that hope and anticipation of that coming one. I went ahead and used the words on the screen, that coming Messiah. When you see the word Christ in the New Testament, you probably know that's the the, the equal concept, the Old Testament concept of a Messiah, an anointed one. 
the Old Testament brings us to Him. It's almost like it walks us right up to the doorstep of that Messiah. It fulfills that purpose. That's part of the importance of it. But connected with that too, it's important because Christ fulfilled it. How often, when you read in the Old Testament of people offering sacrifices and doing all these things, you almost get this idea that this just can't be done. And then in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, Jesus specifically said at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And in the next verse, He gave that famous statement about not a jot or a tittle, not an iota or a dot of the law will be done away until all has been, depending on the translation you've got, accomplished or fulfilled. Folks, what's the rest of the ministry of Jesus about? Oh, a lot of things. But one of them is living up to that statement. And that's exactly what He did. Jesus, in the letter of the law, if you will, but also in the spirit of the law, completely fulfilled it. He showed that it could be done. But then He took it out of the way. But maybe most practically, is the way we often think of it, this is important that the Old Testament brings us to the New Testament in that we can't fully grasp in depth the New Testament without some understanding of the Old Testament. If you don't believe that's true, how does the New Testament begin? Matthew 1 verse 1. The, genealogy, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. If I've never read the Old Testament, I have no idea who Abraham and David are and I'm one verse in. You read through any book of the New Testament, but specifically a couple. You read through Matthew. Try getting through Matthew without some understanding of some Old Testament concepts. Read through a book like Galatians. It's found constantly. Romans also. Try understanding Revelation without some... You don't have to be an Old Testament scholar. You don't have to understand Hebrew and all that sort of thing. But... There are concepts that the Old Testament gives us that help us to understand the New Testament because we have, for lack of a better term, that background information. Which means the Old Testament did its job. It brought us to the teacher. It brought us to the place of instruction. It is important. But, number three, it is no longer in effect. In other words, we are no longer under the law of Moses. In this very same text, in Galatians chapter 3, Paul gets to that immediately. In verse 24, he had just said, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. And he immediately turns around, what we know is verse 25, and says, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Can I just paraphrase what Paul was saying? He is basically saying, we no longer need that thing that brings us to the teacher because we have the teacher. We've been brought to that which instructs us. That is Christ and His Testament we often call the New Testament. 
the New Testament quite often talks about how that old law was taken. And there are plenty of other verses. You're looking at this going, there's other places that say this. I know that, but I didn't want to be here until 4 o'clock this afternoon. Okay, For one thing, we could just read the entire book of Hebrews. It talks about this constantly. Maybe nowhere more clearly than chapter 8 and verse 13 where it's been talking about a new covenant or a different covenant. And it says, in speaking of a new covenant, He makes the first one obsolete. The New Testament talks about how He takes the law and has nailed it to the cross. We're not under the law, Moses. Well, then what what difference does that make? What's the practical point? The practical point is, we're no longer under any Old Testament law unless it is brought forward to us again under the covenant of Christ. The new covenant. Take a couple of examples. You go back to the law of Moses. In fact, in the Ten Commandments, you can walk up to a courthouse and probably see this one. Honor your father and your mother. I like that one. Exodus chapter 20. I like that one. But children today do not honor father and mother because Exodus 20 tells them to. And they go, all right, rebellion time. Nobody, Ephesians 6 does. It's specifically brought over to the New Testament. In fact, word for word, children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and you may live long on the earth or in the land. So, so children today who are trying to honor God don't honor God because Exodus 20 tells them to. They honor God because Ephesians 6, the New Covenant, the New Testament tells them to. Take a different example. What about some of our worship practices? In the Old Testament, you find all kinds of things in, in, in worship to God and praise to God. And some people say, well, for example, you won't have like a, a band up here, even a piano or anything. What's, what's the deal with that? After all, we see that in the Bible. Of course we do. You read the Old Testament. It's all, read the last few Psalms. They're all over the place. But they're conspicuously absent from the New Testament. What's, what's brought over to the New Testament? Well, the fact that we are to worship. Worship the Lord your God. And, and the idea of in spirit and truth, John 4.24. Singing is brought over to the New Testament. Ephesians talks about that. Colossians talks about it. Hebrews 13.5 talks about it. And many of those who were Christians had been Jews. They knew what it meant to worship God with all sorts of instrumentation. But now they don't. Why? Because it's not brought over to the New Testament. And we are not under the law of Moses. You see, it helps us to understand how to please God because I simply follow the covenant that the Old Covenant has brought us to. Now, as we close, what difference does this make? After all, if it's all Scripture, then, then is it any big deal? Oh yeah, it's a big deal. If for no other reason then, the New Testament tells us to make sure that we are rightly dividing the Word of Truth or handling aright the Word of Truth. 2 Timothy chapter 2. But let me give you three very quick practical points as to the difference this makes. Number one, it should give us a greater appreciation for Christ and His will. When we read the Old Testament, and we read of things like offering sacrifices year 
after year after year after year after year. And then we come to the New Testament and we read of Christ offering Himself once for all. What a profound level of appreciation we should have for Him and then for the will that He gives to us. And that's also true of almost any concept we could think of. Again, we could just this morning just overview the book of Hebrews because that's what the whole book basically is about is how the will of Christ or the way of Christ is better than all that stuff in the Old Testament. That was good for a time. But it should give us a more tremendous appreciation for Christ. Number two, it does remind us to still use the Old Testament for things like illustration or illumination. Let me give you an example. Peter tells us, again, New Testament, you are a royal priesthood. If I've never read the Old Testament, I have no earthly idea what that means. But if I've read the Old Testament, and I see that the sincerity with which priests honored God, and the, the tremendous level of appreciation they had for making sure they followed the, the will of God, and the fact that they were supposed to be helping others be drawn closer to God, now I begin to understand what it means when as a New Testament Christian, I'm also a priest. And we could go on and on and on in talking about how there are so many things found in the New Testament that are, if you please, given a divine illustration in the Old Testament. That we understand the depth of them or what God exactly had in mind when we placed those things together. And then three... It makes the massive difference and it gives us clarity in how to follow God today. Am I supposed to follow both the Old Testament and New Testament? No. Do I have to pick and choose? Well, I, I kind of like that law from the Old Testament, but what about this one? No. I have clarity. I love and appreciate and study and want to know the Old Testament. But on this side of the cross, if I'm going to honor God, I follow the New Testament. I make sure I follow the will and testament of the one to whom the Old Testament brought me. And that's exactly what Paul writes about as he continues in Galatians chapter 3. Because after telling us that the law had brought us to Christ, he basically gives us a point of decision. What am I supposed to think about that? One of the most famous verses on baptism in all the Bible. When he talks about all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself or have put on Christ. You think, What's, what? Adam's just trying to get baptism into anything he possibly can get into. No. It's perfect in its context. You don't find baptism, especially for remission of sins, in the Old Testament. You just don't. Where do you find it? You find it with Jesus and in His Testament. So why would Paul put it here? He puts it here because the Old Testament in anticipation and the New Testament in presentation bring us to Jesus and say, it's up to you to decide. And the decision needs to be I'm going to put on Jesus. Because the Old Testament brought me to Him. And the New Testament tells me to follow Him. And that's what He said to do. Whoever believes 
and is baptized will be saved. Mark 16, verse 16. Do you do that this morning? If so, will you come? I'll be standing and sing to encourage you.